The following podcast contains general advice only and does not take into account your individual circumstances. Listeners should speak to an accountant or financial advisor before making any investment decision. What is up, everyone? Welcome to the Market Pulse podcast. This is episode 10, the early mark, fresh off a weekend of loosened COVID-19 restrictions, I guess for most parts of Australia at least, which I'm sure was welcomed by some of the listeners here. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you, as always, do have questions for the show, feel free to email me through at marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com, but we're going to jump right into it and look at how the markets performed over the last week. The ASX 200 was was pretty much, I mean, it, I guess it was green, it was up 0.1%, but it was, it was basically a flat week. And I guess, I suppose the most notable event last week in terms of market performance was definitely the Friday, because it kind of seemed like the market was just continuing its slow but steady climb. And then suddenly on Friday, the, the market actually was down about 5% and there was some pretty big significant drops from companies. Uh, BHP was down 7.8%, CBA down 6.2%, CSL 3.5%. And only seven companies within the actual ASX 200 on Friday actually had a, had a good day. So, so some of those companies include Fisher & Paykel and ResMed and one of the key drivers behind those two actually not falling with the rest of the market is because they are in the business of ventilators, which is, as you can imagine, quite a lucrative business right now. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ were very much the same. They were down, actually down 0.2% for the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ down 0.3%, a bit of a mixed week in terms of earnings. There was some good news and there were some bad news over there in the US. We're jumping right in. One of the most interesting things I did read this week was regarding the impact of COVID-19 to US jobs. And as you know, there have been millions of new unemployment claims in the US. And to put that, uh, you know, I guess into some perspective, the US economy over the, the period between November 2009 up until February 2020, so kind of just before everything started happening, the US economy created 22.5 million jobs across um, that time period. And in just the last six weeks, the US economy has shed over 30 million jobs. So there's some, uh, some perspective on, on those job losses that we've been covering over the past few weeks. We've been highlighting those jobless claims each week. However, we, we haven't actually seen actual, the actual US unemployment rate updated, uh, I guess, since COVID-19 really started impacting uh, the US and, and shutting down businesses and everything like that. I think at its lowest, US unemployment was actually quite low going into this. I mean, as as was Australia as well, but over there, the US, I think it was about about 3.5% just before um, the shit hit the fan, I guess is not really the better way to put it. So it was very low and there are estimates that it could actually uh, triple from that figure. So from that 3.5% very easily. I know some analysts have it up around the 16% ish mark so we will i guess we will keep following that coronavirus now having taken uh people or just just under 250,000 people at recording of this podcast and continuing to play on the market and we saw this week it's started to show up in some of the global growth figures as well so the u.s released 
their GDP figures, so gross domestic product figures, and their economy actually contracted uh, on a, this is an annualized percentage, but it's uh, four, went backwards 4.8% in the first quarter of 2020, which is actually the worst reading of GDP that, that the US has actually had since the Great Recession, so since the GFC. There was similar bad news in Europe. The Eurozone economy actually contracting 3.8%. Specifically, I looked at uh, France was back 58 and Spain back 52 And so for France, this is actually the largest drop in GDP that they've actually experienced since the 1940s, so just after, uh, sorry, the late 1940s, so just after World War II finishing. I know we're still a few weeks away from the official you know, quarter one GDP figures in Australia. It's going to be a very interesting one because, you know, on one side of the coin, spending is is down on, on things like, you know, recreation and, and travel and, and I guess petrol as, as well. But it's significantly up in areas, you know, like food and beverages, um, obviously mostly in places like Coles and Woolies, of course. So those, those kind of food and beverage per- purchases, uh, and especially driven by a lot of the panic buying that went on. If you remember back to episode three, we, we talked about that consumption is actually part of the equation when, when they calculate GDP. So GDP is consumption plus government spending plus private investment plus net exports. And last week in Australia, we saw inflation data come out. And inflation is measured primarily by what they call the consumer price index, which is effectively just a bag of general household goods and spending habits that they use to measure I guess how prices increase, or if it, if they're looking at deflation, it's how prices decrease over time. So inflation data was out last week, and the actual annual headline inflation lifted up from 1.8% to 2.2, and that that was of course driven by the rise in prices among uh, food products and and beverages, uh, alcohol as well, and and health spending. However, you, we obviously saw decreases in things like fuel. Uh, which is, of course, due to oil prices collapsing around the world and travel accommodation, etc. But it was actually the biggest lift we've seen in inflation for over five years. But it's it's different. <laughs> you have to sort of take it with a grain of salt, I suppose, because uh, it's it's based around the fact that it's driven very much primarily by a lot of the panic buying and a lot of the stocking up of our pantries that went on over the over the first quarter of this year. And a lot of it's not too surprising, you know, it's, it was likely to happen given just the general behavior of consumers over the past couple of months and, and just the impact of really low oil prices on car fuel and the fact that we're not really driving around too much anyway. But I am curious to see GDP in Australia. It, it's funny listening and reading, it's, it might actually hold up a little bit better than initially expected and that could come purely from that consumption but it's just speculation right now but we will see that uh, I think I think it's at least probably three to four weeks away other news last week the banks actually started to come out with their earnings results in Australia and this week so the week of the 4th of May we have banks such as Westpac and Macquarie also releasing their earnings but but last week it was all about ANZ and NAB and there was quite a big uh, dividend policy actually between the two banks. So NAB, which is now under the leadership of Ross McEwen, they've decided to still pay a dividend, but they've had to actually cut that dividend 
quite significantly. So they've cut it around 60%, I think I read. And they've also had to support that decision by actually doing a capital raising as well, where they're going to issue new shares. Uh, so, but on the other hand, ANZ actually decided not to do something like a capital raising, but they're not actually paying a dividend as well. Actually, as I'm recording this podcast, which I'm doing it a bit later than I usually do, it's Monday morning, and Westpac have only just released their results this morning to the market. So some probably some headline pointers. So Westpac's cash earnings are down 70%, and they have, they've also decided to follow ANZ and actually say that they're deferring their dividend decision. Look, I wouldn't be holding out for a dividend from either of those two now that they've said they're deferring it. Um, I, I guess we'll see, but... Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be. Uh, I wouldn't be holding my breath. The Westpac half year result is actually a little bit brutal. Remember, they've actually cough up a, around a billion dollars. <laughs> what a strange sentence to say. Around a billion, like it's some small figure. But they they had that Oztrack anti money laundering case, which they've coughed up a, a hefty fine for. And they've, according to at least their market announcement today, they've putting further provisions for expected bad debts as well. And they're also starting some review of their specialist businesses, which is things like wealth platforms, uh, the super business, uh, Westpac Pacific, insurance, which is kind of the thing that a lot of the banks have started to do post-Royal Commission. They will talk about simplifying their offering. And you've seen a lot of you know banks actually sell off different parts of their business that aren't, I guess, quote-unquote core. So things like wealth uh, and insurance. The other big news in the last few days concerns... Afterpay and shareholders would understand what a roller coaster it is to own those shares, but they announced to the market on Friday that Chinese tech giant Tencent has actually taken a 5% stake in the company, which costs them about $300 million. If you're unaware of the, the name of Tencent, they're actually this massive Chinese conglomerate. I, I'm familiar because I know that they've got stakes in a couple of different gaming companies out there like they own epic games who created or sorry they don't own epic games they own a, a fair bit of it but they epic games is known for Fortnite, for example so they've got their sort of hands in a lot of different stuff but they also dabble in music and film uh, and they're they're a huge company over there and that was greeted very well shares have actually jumped extremely high <laughs> Uh, 20% off the back of that news, which is, I mean, Afterpay has some of the most insane volatility for an ASX 200 company. I mean, if you look back in March, you could have bought shares in Afterpay for nine bucks and they're $35 now. Also in market meme news, Elon Musk tweeted, quote, Tesla share price is too high, IMO, which caused the Tesla share price to drop 10%. And I was looking at that tweet by Elon Musk and there was a bunch of people in his replies that were saying, you know, you've just cost me like thousands of dollars. What the hell are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. But I want to jump straight into some of the topics of discussion this week. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Berkshire Hathaway. I managed to catch a little bit of Warren Buffett's shareholder Q&A that went down on Sunday. But I'm also going to do a segment at the end of the podcast and do a bit of an education style segment and and talk about how to buy shares. So let's talk about Berkshire Hathaway, a very famous US conglomerate headed by legendary investors, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Uh, They had a live stream this time. Obviously, they usually do quite a big AGM 
Um, but, you know, given COVID-19 and stuff, it was more of a web live stream kind of style set up this time. And they had Warren and, and their vice chairman, Greg Abel, both sitting there answering shareholder questions and it was streamed on you know YouTube and everything like that. Warren was sitting there with his with a can of Coke, which is classic. A few points worth mentioning from the webcast from when I was watching. So, and these are just some of the points that I, I picked out. So one of, the, one of the questions was from a shareholder from Oklahoma who asked about poor performance of Berkshire Hathaway, the company versus the actual S&P 500 uh, US index and sort of pointed out, you know, whether it would be better just sticking to an index fund, uh, you know, such as a Vanguard index fund covering the S&P 500 instead of actually purchasing Berkshire shares. If you have a quick look, the S&P 500 in the US is down about 13.1% year to date at the moment. And Berkshire Hathaway shares are down 19.95% year to date. So the bounce that the markets experienced after the lows in March have not been as favorable towards Berkshire Hathaway. And that's probably not helped by losses in airlines companies, but I'll touch on that in just a sec. But he also doesn't own some of the companies that have held up really well this year. So he doesn't own uh, Walmart. He used to own Walmart actually, but um, I can't remember how many years ago it was, but he did exit his position on Walmart. He Companies like Microsoft and Amazon have actually also held up, well, especially Amazon, they've done really well this year in terms of share price performance. And these are all huge US companies that are part of the S&P 500 index, but not part of Warren Buffett's portfolio. I mean, Warren's answer was, pretty obvious I guess if you if you do want a safe bet over the long term then yeah he pretty much agrees that an index fund is ideally the way to go but Berkshire is not an index fund although you could argue that it's owning shares in Berkshire Hathaway is as close to being in some kind of index fund without it actually being one due just just due to the spread of you know his holdings across large US businesses he said in regards to, I guess, the question and, and investing in the S&P 500, quote, there are huge amounts of money people pay for advice they just really don't need. If you bet on America and sustain that position for decades, you'd do far better than buying treasury securities or far better than following people who tell you what to invest in. On a side note from, I guess, their shareholder Q&A and their market release, they, they're now sitting, Berkshire Hathaway is actually sitting on a massive... $137 billion in cash just ready to deploy. And so, which has kind of been a theme of Warren and, and Berkshire Hathaway over the last few years, just building this huge cash pile. And he's kind of claimed that he hasn't yet seen anything too attractive that he wants to go in on just yet, but maybe that changes. But probably the biggest news out of the, the announcement from Berkshire Hathaway is that they've actually completely sold down all their exposure to the major US airlines. So, and which is which is actually pretty significant. Like Berkshire Hathaway actually owned some big stakes in the likes of United Airlines and American Airlines and Delta and, and Southwest. So for example, he owned about 11% of Delta. So these are big stakes of these airlines. He owned around the nine, 9% of United Airlines as well. He was pretty forthcoming, forthcoming sorry, during the live stream. You know, he admitted that, you know, in those investments in airlines had been a, a mistake. What's that funny but extremely overused quote? It says, if you want to be a millionaire, start with a billion dollars and buy an airline. You might be thinking, well, okay, but if he sold out all his stakes in airlines over the last few weeks, isn't that just, you know, crystallizing all your losses and making them real and selling at the bottom? And 
And the answer is yes, where he, he's taken a loss off this, which might str- seem like a strange move, but I guess his comments about it is, you know, his, his opinion, I guess, on the airline industry is pretty negative over the years coming. It's I don't think he thinks that there's going to be some amazing ba- uh, bounce back where where exactly where we were, you know, domestic travel-wise and all that pre-COVID-19 super quickly. You know, his, uh, his quote was, the airline business, and I may be wrong and I hope I'm wrong, but I think it's changed in a very major way. The future is much less clear to me, so... And I know I'm beating an old drum. I kind of do share that similar sentiment regarding airlines specifically, um, especially, you know, when you look at it at home and we've obviously got Qantas as our, as our national airlines. You <laughs> can't really say what, what's going to happen to Virgin just yet. But, you know, think about Qantas. Obviously, if and it looks like, of course, that Australia is starting to get a much better handle on COVID-19, I don't think... It just immediately snaps back to the to the level of you know flights and, and travel, and, you know those kind of customers coming through the airline and the airports um, as it was you know right before COVID nineteen. I think it takes a little bit of time to get back to that level. Okay, so my next segment I wanted to talk a little bit about well this is this is actually an education segment. So it's basically how to buy shares, and it's, it is very much aimed at people who haven't purchased or invested in shares before so I do apologize if you're someone that's listening and you're kind of on top of this already but you know maybe you'll learn a, a few things along the way it's it's a topic that's actually been on people's mind as of late so you can jump on Google Trends you know which is basically a, a data analysis you know web portal that shows you what people are, are punching into Google at any given time and especially over the last few months it kind of it did peak at sort of mid to late March, but the term, you know, how to buy shares was just had this massive spike on Google search trends. So it's definitely been on people's minds. The first thing we're going to talk about today is the platform. So you, you actually need a stockbroker to buy shares. They kind of act as the middleman, so to speak, between you as the investor and the Australian Stock Exchange. Now, for most people, they'll just use an online stockbroking platform to buy shares. It's, it's very accessible these days and it is relatively easy to, to do and to set up and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I won't speak too much about which platform you can use. There are a, a variety out there, which I've, I've mentioned a few of them in, in various episodes in the past, but just just be wary of a couple things. First, first is fees, which, obviously, which sounds obvious. You know, of course you should be wary of the fees that are charging, but generally speaking, there are fees for when you make a trade, so when you buy and sell. So you, you do need to be aware of these. And when I say not aware of it, you also need to be aware of how you're going to invest. And, and granted, that might change over time. But for example, if you're someone who invests regularly, so you might be investing every week or so, then fees are a lot more important and a lot more critical to the platform that you choose than say someone who only throws some money into the market after they've saved up maybe just a few times a year so maybe three to four times a year so that person who's only investing you know a few times a year maybe they pay a higher fee or whatever but it doesn't maybe it doesn't matter as much in the long term because they're they're investing so irregularly but if you're someone who's doing it quite often then you need to be a bit more aware of those fees the other thing to be aware of, you'll see the term 
chess sponsored floating around so you'll see brokers saying you get a chess sponsored account and all this stuff i for the life of me can't remember what the (laughs) the chess is an acronym i can't remember what it stands for all you need to know about chess is effectively it means that if you've got a a stockbroking account and it's chess sponsored it means that the australian stock exchange uh, records your name against the ownership of those shares so let's say you're using uh, I'm going to make up a stockbroking platform. So it's called uh, Market Pulse Online Stockbroking. And you bought some shares in BHP through my stockbroking platform. And it's chess sponsored in this case. So what that means is let's say my business, my stockbroking platform business is not very well run and it goes out of business. So it goes bankrupt. It means that it doesn't matter that you've purchased these shares through my business. It means that they're just recorded at the Australian Stock Exchange as your shares and the fact that my business has gone out of has gone bankrupt has run out of money doesn't it has nothing to do with it's not going to pull you down with it right you, you just own these shares regardless and so with a chess sponsored account you have what's called a hin number so it's hin and basically it's an id so it's a, it's a little id number that's attributed to your account so if your hin number say was one two three four five six seven and it might just record that number against your name and, and what holdings you have. Like it might say, oh, you've got um, shares in CBA, you've got shares in Afterpay, you've got shares in Westpac. And that's how it knows uh, the shares attributed to your chess sponsored holding. I hope that was, I hope that made sense. That was a little bit convoluted, but you might see that term floating around out there. Also, I guess a third point to note is if you're unhappy with a stockbroker, it's actually generally speaking it's it is free to transfer your holdings out to another platform so if you if you're not enjoying the process or the the actual applications or the tools that your platform has you can you can change pretty pretty freely or so easily i should say and especially if there's no name or ownership change in the actual shares it, it's pretty easy to actually switch that over to another broker all right so jumping in on how to actually place a trade so how to actually buy some shares So I've only actually experienced personally purchasing shares on two different platforms and those are Comsec and Nabtrade. They're not, that's not a recommendation that you have to use those two because what I'm going to talk about is just from a generalized point of view and it's, it's, it's the same in in terms of the process of actually buying shares, no matter what your platform, but you know, whoever you're actually banking with, they, they will likely offer a platform to buy shares. Probably some of the smaller banks don't do that. There are independent I guess, non-bank related stockbroking platforms as well out there. So the likes of Self-Wealth and IG Trading uh, ring a bell. But yeah, most of the big banks also offer a trading platform as well. So let's talk about making your first order or or buying your first lot of shares. So no matter your platform, it's generally going to be in a section that's under trading or place order or something like that. And that's where you actually go to, to, of course, buy shares for the first time. So generally the first thing you have to do is pick whether you're buying or selling. So that's relatively self-explanatory. And then the next thing you have to do is enter the company or the or the, the code for the company that you're buying. Remember we talked about how in the US there's, there's been examples of uh, companies with similar names, uh, share price that's actually driven up really quickly because people have invested in the wrong companies so don't don't do that don't rush into something if you're not sure either jump on you know to the phone and maybe ring your platform provider and just ask them for some help to clarify that stuff but you should you should be able to find it relatively easy google can help 
you can search in the platform so you can actually search the name so you could type in you know uh, Qantas or Westpac banking or you know something Telstra or whatever and you sh- and you'll be able to find the actual code for those companies relatively easier in in Australia those codes are three letters or not always letters there can be numbers in it but there's not many with numbers in it. They mostly just have three letters. So then you got to, so let's say you, you've hit buy. We're going to do a pretend um, trade here. So I'm going to pretend to buy a BHP. I don't own shares in BHP for full disclosure. This is just an example. So I've hit buy and BHP's stock code, thankfully, turns out to be BHP. Then you got to talk about, so then you got to look at how many I want to buy or a value, so, you, so some platforms just say, do you want to actually just buy a value of shares? So do you want to buy $2,000 worth of BHP shares or do you want to buy a quantity? So that's the number of shares, you, as in do you want to buy say 200 shares in BHP for, for this example? And then you've uh, once you've decided that, then you usually, I guess the way I usually do it is, I've always done it like quantity, I, I just, I buy a specific number of shares it doesn't i guess it doesn't really matter but if you like for example you've set up set aside two thousand dollars to invest in in the market then you can just put that value in instead and the next part is probably the bit that most people get a bit confused as what it actually means and that's when you actually set the price of what you want to buy these shares for so it'll say do you want to put an order in for the market price or do you want to put an order in with a price limit? And it is important to understand the difference. In, depending on the trade you're making, that, that probably doesn't matter as much. But it is important to understand what that means. So when you're buying shares, if you're saying you want to buy it at market, effectively that means that you want to buy it at the current market price. And if you're doing that you know, during the time of you know, 10 o'clock to 4 o'clock in, in the middle of the day of a weekday, the market's open so that that price can be slightly changing as you're putting that that actual order in but the market price is effectively a representation of where the buyers meet the sellers and somewhere so whatever the whatever the actual price of the last trade that came through was now if you don't want to do that if you want to actually set a price limit what you're saying there is you're saying this is my ceiling i don't want to pay more than this for these shares and that's often a really good thing to do. I, I generally put a price limit in, but I'm, I'm, I'm aware of the actual price of these of the company that I'm purchasing when I put that limit in. So for example, let's say you're looking at BHP. I haven't even checked the price. And in this case, we're obviously buying and we're going to say we're going to buy 200 shares of BHP. Well, we can say put a price limit in at $30. And, and effectively what that means is I'm happy to pay less than $30, but I don't want to pay anything more than $30. So that means if the price of BHP at the moment is actually $31, your order won't go through straight away because it's not it's not underneath that ceiling. Then there's also the next part, which is how long your actual order lasts on the market. Because when you put an order in, effectively, it's a giant list of buyers and sellers uh, like like two columns, like you got your buyer's column and your seller's column. So in the example we've been talking about, we're buying BHP shares at, and we want to put a limit on at $30, but unfortunately the BHP share price at the moment is $31. That means your order might sit there and you can actually change how long your order sits there for. So 
you can say it's just good for the day, which means that it only sit there for today and then at the end of the day it just gets cancelled. Or you can actually set an expiry date on it and most of the time this can't be too long away. Like you can generally set uh, an expiry date within the next few weeks for it to happen. You can't just like set an expiry date for like next year or anything like that. But you can actually set a date and say, look, if it does come down to the price that I'm interested in BHP for, then I want it to, to happen, but by this particular date. So for most people, what they're going to do, they're going to buy it at the time though. So they're going to sit by, they're going to say, this is the company I want to buy. This is the number of shares or the value of the shares I want to buy. And this is say, I want to buy it at market price or I just want to buy it or I want to set a price limit. It's pretty easy after that. It'll probably likely that your platform will show you what kind of fees are associated with that trade as well. They'll, they'll add that on to the actual total price and then you hit go and then it's pretty much live. Generally speaking, the, the platform that you use, if you've if you said, I want to buy some BHP shares and you said, I'll just buy it at what the market price is right now, that as soon as you hit go, that, that trade is probably instantly already done. Like it's too late to back out then because you know, these things are just computers that are just quickly matching the trades with, you know, prospective buyers and sellers as soon as possible. And it, and, it's, and it happens within less than a second, probably, to be honest with you. So there's really no going, there's really no going back after that, um, unless you, of course, sell your shares, but then you're taking at least a loss on the fees that you've, you've paid for those shares. Hopefully that's cleared some of the, the pitfalls and some of the questions you might have around buying shares for the first time. By all means, like I said at the top of the podcast, we do have sometimes have questions come in. So that's it. You can email your questions at marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. If you had questions about, you know, how to actually place a trade or invest for the first time, or if anything I said perhaps didn't uh, make much sense or you need it to be a bit clearer, that's fine. Send a question through and we can talk about it in future episodes. Well, thank you very much for listening to the podcast. If you are in Queensland, enjoy your long weekend. If you're not in Queensland, then you're at work, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, that's all right. You get back at, I think in June, you guys get the, the long weekend that we don't. So whatever. Thank you again for listening to the podcast. Have a great week. Cheers.